Hey, everybody. It's Amna. We have a very special episode of Uncomfortable for you today, sort of a bi-coastal edition. We've got Zara Nurbaksh, who is the co-host of the Good Muslim, Bad Muslim podcast. We talked to her here in New York. And we have her co-host, Taz Ahmed, who we talked to when we were out in Los Angeles. We're going to hear from Taz first, then from Zara. And here's the interview. Taz Ahmed, you are a self-described storyteller, activist, politico, um, artist, and, of course, co-host of the Good Muslim, Bad Muslim podcast. That is correct. That's all-encompassing. Did I get yeah. everything in there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I okay, do yeah. lots of things. I do all the things. You do all of the things. <laughs> um, we're going to be talking to your co-host yes. in a little bit, which should be fun, too. But, you know, we like to talk here about not just what we believe, but why we believe what we do. And so I love to hear how people got where they are. So yeah. can we? Can you tell me the story of Taz? Tell me about your childhood, how you grew up. Oh, my gosh. That's a really big question. Um <laughs> We're in California now. This is where I was basically born and raised. I was born in LA. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Muslim Californian girl. Basically, what, is that, what does that mean? <laughs> were you was religion a big part of your life? Was it? Yeah, you know, your, your it, parents it, were. My parents are from Bangladesh, right. and it was kind of um, it wasn't a big part of my life, but then at the same time, it was a big part of my life. Um, I wasn't raised culturally. I would say that there's a lot of uh, Bengalis that were raised, you know, learning how to play music and learning how to do dance. But I wasn't raised with that aspect of it, uh, of being Bangladeshi. And so so I, I was just kind of like ambiguously brown growing up. And then um, ambiguously brown. Yeah. <laughs> and then we went to uh, we moved to Saudi Arabia when I was oh, 12. Okay. Mm -hmm. And when we had made that move, that was because of your dad's my, work. My dad's or, job. Yeah. It was he's an electrical engineer, so he got a. Um, this was right after the first war, right after. So there was all these. The war had ended. There was all these jobs that were available out uh, in Saudi Arabia. So he got a job at a desalinization plant in Saudi Arabia, okay, in Jubail, which was actually the the city closest to Kuwait. Anyway, so uh, my dad went first, and then the rest of us went about six months after he did. Um, and I remember when we moved there, there was still tape on the the windows and the sky was still gray from the 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 burning stacks in uh kuwait oh wow and by the time we had arrived there my dad had got really into religion he um started praying i don't actually remember him praying before we went to saudi arabia but after he went there i think he i mean he was praying but i don't think he was like as religious as um he became and then mm -hmm. then my mom also started getting really into religion um, and then my, my existence or how my parents raised me was more Muslim, I would say. In Saudi. In Saudi. And yeah. then, uh, we came back to the U.S. when I was 14. And, um, for, for me, the being Muslim was always more primary to my raising than being Bengali, mm -hmm. which is kind of weird, I think. Why do you think that's weird? I think... I would have imagined that people would try to raise me with more Bengali values, um, being immigrants and trying to um, hold on to that hometown, not even hometown, in, in Bangladesh, it's, it's Desh, Deshi, right. holding on to those Deshi values. Yeah. Um, like the cultural traditions mm -hmm. and the, uh, the practices yeah. and those kinds of things. Yeah. But I guess that wasn't as important for my family as... Uh, the Muslim. faith. Yeah. Do you think that was because of the time spent in Saudi Arabia? Was it oh, yeah, for because sure. of that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, what's been interesting now is like when you look <clears> at people <throat> in Bangladesh now, religion has become a lot more primary to the existence there. Yeah. Um, there's a lot, lot more people wearing hijabs, a lot more um, prayers happening, a lot more murders happening, honestly, with the bloggers who write about Islam and secularly, there, there a lot of there's been a lot of attacks. Yeah, but I think the existence that my parents were raised in Bangladesh, that my they were there um, in the 1960s, and um, yeah, early 1970s, it was a lot more secular. It was a lot yeah. more trying to say that we are Bengali first and religious second. So yeah. it's interesting to see my parents come into that kind of knowledge away from that country too it's it's there's such a similar story to my parents too could grow up in, in pakistan around yeah. the same time it was largely secular yeah right? the religion was practiced sort of in the context of yeah. just like faith or community 
And uh, I think those in South Asia in particular, those changes have happened. Yeah, totally. Over the last couple of generations, really, mm-hmm. um, which is a whole nother conversation. We can have a whole nother podcast yeah. on, on, on that. Um, but I'm curious how, so clearly religion kind of shifted in, in its place in your life. The podcast focused yeah. on, built around a religious identity. Where did that come from? It came from a joke. Okay. <laughs> Zara and I started our podcast um, with the hashtag good Muslim, bad Muslim, because we had become friends on the book tour for Love Inshallah, the secret love lives of radical, uh, sorry, the secret love lives of American Muslim women. That's the name of the book. Mm-hmm. And um, we would go on book tours and we had a lot of fun on our book tours and we would joke around a lot. And then on Twitter, we started this just going back and forth and we'd make fun of you know, burqa bikinis next time on the Good Muslim, Bad Muslim podcast. We were making fun of the fact that podcasts would talk about this. Yeah. And our followers would be like, where where do we hear this podcast? And we were, we were like, we're just joking. We're not being serious. <laughs> it doesn't actually exist. It doesn't exist. And uh, then Zara and I started talking. We're like, well, maybe we need to like create this podcast since people are asking for it. And we decided, we decided to start it, but it took us a, a, a little while because we didn't have the know-how of figuring out how to, you know, what microphones like, to get. Technically how to do stuff. it. Yeah. So I had a friend who um, who is our sound engineer now, and he was like, it's really easy. I'm just going to do it for you. So he's our producer and sound engineer. And so he produces it first, and we're able to have this podcast. And it's been a lot of fun. It's been – we've been going now for two and a half years. But you – Look, the idea that it is a, it's called good Muslim, bad Muslim. Yeah. For, are you, is one of you good, one of you bad? Or are you kind of no. both play good cop, bad cop here? We're kind of making fun of the fact yeah. that um, what is a good Muslim and what is a bad Muslim. I think when, for me, when I was growing up, I was raised um, in this like super strict household. You know, I had to be home before the sun went down, you know, in time for Maghrib prayer uh, and before the street lights went on. And, um, I was a rebel because I liked going to concerts. I wouldn't drink. I wouldn't do drugs. I didn't have boyfriends, whatever. You know, like I was, I really felt felt like I was following the, the rules that my parents wanted for me, um, but I would go to shows. But to my parents, I was like the bad Muslim. And to all these, the community, I was a, a bad Muslim because that's what I participated in. But yeah. then when you would look at um, non-Muslim communities, they would see that I wouldn't drink and I would, wouldn't do drugs. And they're like, oh, you're a good Muslim. So the whole context of what is good and what is bad was so arbitrary that I felt like I was always trying to fight a box that I was being put into. Yeah. And, um, and that's kind of what we talk about in the podcast is that we don't have to follow other people's definition of good or bad. We are who we are. We can define the term good for ourselves. We can define what is bad for ourselves and that we're unboxable is really what you're trying to say. There's something, it's kind of weird to say in 2017, but there's something really unique about two Muslim women yeah. having this kind of conversation. Um, and it's unique in the community. It's unique outside of the community. What kind of response have you gotten just on that, on on being two women having these yeah, conversations? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it started with the book, right? With yeah. Love Inshallah. Like the fact that Muslim women are just telling their stories is really political because we're not supposed to be telling our stories, we're supposed to be secretive, we're not supposed to be sharing, both uh, within the Muslim community and non-Muslim community, that brown women aren't supposed to share. And just the fact that we're telling our own narratives is a political act. And I think there's something really powerful in that. Um, And then in our conversations, it's not explicitly political. We're not saying, we're not talking about hate crimes every episode, even though we do talk about hate crimes we're not talking about sex in every episode, even though we do talk about sex. So the fact that we're just two women having a normal conversation, the way women have conversations, is the political act. And that's uh, it's really powerful. And I think it's un- for some reason it's unexpected, even though it shouldn't be unexpected. Well, it's certainly unique, right? There's yeah. not a lot of it. Absolutely. But I, when you say, you know, we're not supposed to be sharing our stories, is that based on what you were taught as it's a Muslim, on, as like a good Muslim growing up, you wouldn't talk about these kinds of things? Um, I think I'm basing it on the comments that we get from the, <laughs> in the comment thread of people saying like, oh, you're you're women and you shouldn't be talking about yourself. There's this... Um, Is that from people in the community or outside yeah, of yeah. yeah, yeah. I would say it's people from within the Muslim community. And I would also say it's people from outside the Muslim community too, saying that they're... What's, what is 
the idea of who a Muslim woman is supposed to be is supposed to fit into this box. And if you don't fit into the box, then you're you're breaking the law somehow. Yeah. What were you – I mean, do you want to be a good Muslim? I guess it's a good first question. I want to be a Muslim, yeah. right? And I'm, I think I'm a good Muslim. If you talk – if you ask Zara the same thing, she'll say she's a good Muslim too, right? Like I think what is good is very relative. Yeah. But what does it mean to you? Like how do you define being adherent to your faith? Oh, I mean, I think that's two different questions. Yeah. I think the idea of good Muslim is different than uh, adherent to my faith. Mm. Um, I think that – I think that I, um, um, you know, I, I don't drink, I don't do drugs, I have very social justice values, I fast during Ramadan, I do good in the world, and I think that's, that's how I practice my faith. Yeah. I think there's a lot of aspects to Islam which I don't agree with, um, and it's a big reason why I just stopped going to mosques, because I feel that the patriarchy that it is in mosque and the, what I see as the mosque type of religion like that's um that's not what fits for me mm -hmm. but um you know in LA we started a women's mosque and I attend the women's mosque because that's a space which I do feel like I am ex I'm accepted and mm -hmm. which is really comfortable for me and I think that's the thing that I've been realizing growing up and being exposed to Islam outside of my parents Islam is that there's all kinds of Islam out there mm -hmm. there's and you hear this in our episode too because Zara is a Shia Muslim and I'm I was raised as a Sunni Muslim and I have friends that are from different sects of Islam and I realized that what the Islam that I was raised in isn't necessarily the Islam that everyone's raised in, that yeah. there's all these differences when it comes to religion and it really changed how I thought that there was one way to be a good Muslim because there's multiple ways of being a good Muslim yeah. and there's multiple practices and for me it's been a really interesting journey to I've been just like after I left my house and went to college, like it's been fascinating to to meet different kinds of Muslims. Because I think when I was growing up, I thought this whole Bengali Muslim community was the only way to exist. And then right. my freshman year roommate was a Lebanese um, Muslim woman. And I didn't realize, you know, that that she practiced the way she did. And we just like went on this and then we became friends with an Egyptian Muslim woman. And like we all had different, very different practices, very different class upbringings and traditions. And I was like, wow, this is, this is really fascinating. And then my, throughout my twenties, it's just been this kind of like seeing other different types of um, people who are practicing in different ways and yeah. just trying to, I wouldn't say pick and choose, but definitely like, like understanding that my ideas are so small compared to all these bigger ideas and identities of being a Muslim American. I'm curious as a woman in particular, because so much of the perception around Islam is about, um, you know, like women being treated as second class citizens, especially in like patriarchal societies yeah. or a lot of Muslim majority countries. Like that's absolutely true in the States though, like in America, where the core values are all about equality and, you know, equal rights for all and equal access to opportunities. Do you see anything in conflict between those values, like American values that are important to you, um, and the core parts of your faith, at least in the way it's, it's practiced largely? Not the way we want it to be, but the way that it exists. I don't know. Can, can you rephrase the question? <laughs> I guess like the mosque example is, yeah. is one thing because this is um, a lot of people outside the community don't know. Like in most mosques, yeah. men and women are separated totally. or women stand behind men to pray. And, you know, I know I remember as a kid, we, we would go to mosques and then um, we started questioning it because yeah. I'm one of three girls and my parents were like, wait a second this is not what we want to teach our girls. So we yeah. stopped going to mosques. They were like, we're, we're trying to teach them all about how they're just as good as anybody else. Yeah. We can't reinforce the opposing idea by taking them to the mosque where they're treated as like second-class citizens. And so like you mentioned the women's mosque yeah. popping up, but that's a recent yeah. sort of phenomenon. Um, so do you see some conflict between being the woman that you want to be in America today and the religion as it's practiced here today? Hmm. I mean, maybe... The thing is that, like, it's hard to say conflict because I think what we're seeing in Muslim America today is um, 
like a journey like there's things that are shifting that's happening and like the women's mosque like maybe when i was growing up there was conflict but now we created our own space so that there isn't conflict and mm -hmm. i think every every point of uh, potential conflict i've been seeing just changes happening and there's feminist scholars in islam now that i didn't wasn't exposed to growing up and um there's there's just like all these groups and books and women that are creating space for themselves and rappers you know like there's just so many people that are muslim american women that are taking that space and i'm i wonder also maybe that they're taking the space because they have this opportunity to do so in america and maybe yeah. they wouldn't be taking this space in other places so what about the people who oppose that because we all know that there's a big part of Muslim society that would look at people like you and yeah. say like, well, you're not really Muslim. Yeah, I don't I don't hear them. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> I don't know. I don't like I, I think a big part of being a person that creates media and like gets attacked all the time is not to read the hateful comments. So if and I think I think oddly, like a big part of um, that shame culture has to do with a. Uh, I don't know. They have to like li read and listen to the content you're providing. And I don't think if they're, they're, I don't think they're listening to, they're definitely not listening to our podcast. So they're not commenting on it. So I don't hear it. Um, you and Zara talk a lot about love and r romance and sex and the things that are not taboo, but like kind of frowned upon for yeah. us to be speaking about as, as Muslim women. Do you d do that deliberately? Is that intentional or is that just because that's what you talk about anyway? Um, we we talk about things that we would talk about normally and we actually don't talk that much about romance and sex on our podcast because zara's been in the same relationship for 10 years <laughs> and so there's no romance there's there. no yeah there's you can talk to her about that um but you know like i think and then like i'm a single woman in my 30s like i that's probably what i was interested in talking about when i was in my 20s it's just not something that i really it's not because i don't want to talk about it well, no, it's not because I'm I'm trying to push it back on a particular agenda. It's just because, like, I'm bored of that conversation. I'm yeah. bored of being the single brown girl, always talking about the single brown being single. <laughs> you know, like, there's other aspects of being a single brown woman. But you, but the book, the collection of stories yeah. about the secret lives, yeah, was, love lives yeah. of, of Muslim women. I mean, that was sort of groundbreaking in a lot of ways. It was amazingly groundbreaking. And it was so exciting to be a part of that book. It came out... Um, now seven years ago, six, yeah. seven years ago. And I think what was, what's been like culture moves so fast. Culture moves fascinatingly fast. And at the time that book came out, um, it was, it was super controversial. And in what way? Be because people didn't read the book. I think all the haters just don't read the content. And they picked out like one page of the book that they might've seen on the internet. And said, this book is haram. This book is terrible. But what was so great... What were they focused on, though? What was the page? Probably, like, of? about the sex. There was a few things. There was a, there was a couple of queer narratives. There was um, probably a couple of domestic violence narratives. Um, there was a couple of polygamous... There was probably two polygamy narratives. Um, you know, it was, as with all parts of our society, there's a breadth of narratives within mm -hmm. this particular community. What I loved about the book was that when you read it, there, you also have very conservative st stories in there too. There were hijabis that went the traditional way of finding marriage and love. And so if you really read the book as a collection, it, it kind of like really did do a good job of reflecting the community. Um, but I think the, the haters just didn't like one or two of the stories. I don't actually remember. We got us on this tangent. <laughs> No, I find it fascinating because it is one of those things that in traditional Muslim circles, you're not, you don't talk about that, like dating and and love outside of like a marriage or a monogamous relationship. Or, I mean, I mean yeah. what is traditional then, right? You know, like, well, that's a good question, right? Yeah. I mean, is it the way that you were raised? Is it the way that you're practicing your faith now? Is, is there no tradition? I, and I would also argue that like, that you have to talk about sex somehow like babies are made so sex must be ha conversation had in traditional <clears throat> marriages you know weddings happen people do get set up so i think like even like what is this idea that like 
the conver- that conversation isn't being had at all in traditional is just kind of um, silly. We might not see it, but I, I can't imagine that these conversations weren't being had given that people got married and had babies. <laughs> I'm curious how like self-identity in in a religion in any religion is such an intensely personal thing anyway right like saying yes this is who I am this is what I believe but being that the way that you see your faith now you practice your faith now is different from the way you were raised right it's evolved to some degree Um, and there are still conflicts in the way the religion is practiced even in the states like certainly Mm -hmm. across the the world but even in in America today um have you ever thought that maybe this isn't the right faith for me, that that mm. it doesn't speak to me and the person that I want to be and the beliefs that I hold? That's interesting. Um, I think there are, everyone always has some sort of questioning phase. I know that um, the, I think the questioning, if, if I ever did have a questioning, wouldn't be if this is the faith, but more of the questioning of does God exist? versus anything else mainly just because of all of the the conflict that we see in the world and i don't for for me it's less about um being drawn to a particular practice or faith because i think i think everything's kind of similar in the end anyways i think this whole idea of religion and um and in islam they say that like in all monotheistic religions are somewhat similar and have the same what the same uh same legacy uh, that's being built upon so in that sense i never really questioned a religion um but i think there there everyone has everyone must there's so much uh terrible things going on in the world especially today um that you have to question the existence of someone someone or a being or a thing yeah. that makes that happen. Um, but I, I think for me, I really was drawn to um, this phrase that I heard growing up at a religious, my parents used to host these religious meetings at um, people's houses after we came back from Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. just like um, educational conversations. I heard that, uh, and I was like 14 at the time, it was that you have to leave the world a better place that you came into. And when I think about religion, that's what I think about, is this idea of social justice and leaving the world a better place than what I came into. And that some people might say that's not a religious value, that's an ethical value or whatever. But for me, that was my religion. Yeah. Was that when I think of how I practice, that's what I'm practicing, is that I am was put on this earth for a reason and whatever the reason is, I'm going to leave the world, try to do my best to leave this world a better place than I came into it. That's, that's how I practice. That's your idea of faith. That's mm-hmm. how you believe in it. It's, it's always eye-opening for me to interact with people who aren't familiar with the faith or who are sort of formed. They may have even strong opinions about it based on things that they've heard or um, things that they've seen. And... Uh, this place of women in Islam, mm-hmm. because of the way it's practiced in most of the world, like most Muslim-majority countries, I think it's fair to say most, use the religion as a tool to subjugate women. Mm-hmm. And Islam in America is relatively sort of young, you know, mm-hmm. in the, on the scope of, of world history. Right. <laughs> and I'm curious how, how you kind of reconcile that when – there are obviously parts of the faith that are undeniably manifest that way, right? Hmm. So is it something totally different in America? Is Islam here going to be, does it have to be practiced differently because of the way that American culture is, because of the way people are raised here, because of the values that we hold here? Maybe. Yeah, I don't don't know the answer to that question. (laughs) Do you, I mean, do you... Especially when you look at your, like, your, you're going to stay in the States, I'm assuming. Yeah. You plan to live here. Do you want to get married? Do you want to have kids one day? I mean, I would like to, yeah. Do you have to marry someone who's Muslim? I would like to, but I'm open to not. Do you want to raise your kids Muslim? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Do any of those things worry you about 
the way that you know the religion is practiced these days? Like, um, there's one mosque right now, one that you feel comfortable going to. But like, think, you have daughters. Does that worry you? I think there's so many amazing Muslim women that I know in my life that I I don't see it in conflict because of that. That just because there isn't a space um, that I'm completely comfortable with doesn't mean that I'm going to run away from it. Because then I'd be living in Antarctica because I don't feel comfortable as an American in this country either <laughs> or anywhere in this world. You know, like yeah. you have to... You have to um, create space for yourself. And you have to create safe space for yourself. It doesn't just happen. There's so many amazing Muslim women in society today. And everything that I've learned in as far as becoming a Muslim woman, I've learned from other Muslim women. And I think it's just really important that um, we recognize that. Um, you talked a little bit, you've written really eloquently about it too, about how quickly and how drastically your life changed after 9-11, about the way people saw mm -hmm. you and the way that things were happening around you. Um, has it gotten better or worse? Oh, definitely worse. Definitely worse. Yeah, so. for sure. I mean, the way we talk about um, September 11th, it's everyone says that, you know, it was during September 11th that the South Asian Muslim and brown, being brown community experienced all this victimization. I think... What we're seeing now is that the systemized victimization. You know, after September 11th, it was very much a backlash. And what we have now is um, a, a fear industrial complex. Um, studies show that between 2008 and 2013, that $208 million went to 72 organizations or 74 organizations to fund Islamophobia. And I think... Um, to me, that, that means it's not like a personal thing. It's not one person that doesn't understand enough about Muslims. It's that this person was indoctrinated and acculturated to hate brown people. And, I mean, we're seeing a lot of that now. And it's very scary. It's, it's, I think it's a scary time to be a, a brown person. I wouldn't even say Muslim. It's, I think it's a scary time to be a brown person in this country. So how does it get better? Well, we need to impeach the president. <laughs> and um, we, you know, we, we, there's... Can you, is it fair to lay it all on the feet of, of President Trump, though? I mean, Islamophobia was a thing long before yeah. he was elected. I mean, President Trump isn't the person that's funding this $208 million. It's, uh, from last I heard, uh, there was a handful of foundations that are funding it. So yeah, I would definitely attack those foundations too. I would attack the 74 organizations that are funding Islamophobia. Um, and, you know, like at the bottom, at the end of the day, it comes down to this whole idea of war, capitalism, and fear. It's this whole using fear as a tool to make sure that war is constantly happening so that you can have profit so that you can gain money in a capitalist society. And brown people just happen to be what's, what's at the bottom right now. Um, in the mid-2000s, mid we saw that the LGBT community experienced a big brunt of this. They, every time you had an election, LGBT communities were on the attack, and you saw the right voters um, coming out to go vote, to vote on anti-LGBT legislation. It's all very systematic. Like, everything that we're seeing is very systematic, which is why it's very frustrating because it's not, it's not something that we can fix with dialogue and conversation. There's actual public policy that needs to be changed and actual um, quantitative, mathematical, political things that can happen to change things. Um, yeah, and I wouldn't lay, I mean, Clinton was also saying things that were anti-Muslim too during um, the her campaign. Her campaign. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't say that it's one or the other, but they're both speaking to a larger, um, larger, terrible, racist, political system that's in place here right now. We should have this conversation again in 10 years <laughs> and see, see things how I've gotten. If um, we're around to, in 10 years. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to follow up on that. Um, the, speaking of safe spaces, this is your safe space away from your co-host here on the podcast. <laughs> you can say whatever you want about her. But I thought it'd be kind of fun to see how well you guys know each other. Oh, are you going to quiz us? Of okay. I'm going to quiz you. And then when we talk to her, I'm going to quiz her. Okay. And we're going to see how well your answers Oh my gosh, up. this is going to be terrible. Okay. <laughs> 
Already. <laughs> Do you know her favorite color? That's a no. That no, pause is no, a no. No, no, no. That no pause I is think a no. I'm, I must know her favorite color. I don't know when colors would come up. I'm feeling like I need to say pink. You're feeling pink. Yeah. Okay. And what's your favorite color? Because we're going to ask her. Uh, my favorite color is like a grayish blue. You think she's going to guess grayish blue? Grayish blue? That's very yeah, specific. Yeah, I think she, she might guess it. Okay. Um, does she have a favorite or food? Or she might say turquoise. Okay, so we'll accept either yeah, of those answers. gray or turquoise. Does she have a favorite food? I think, well, she has a lot of food issues. <laughs> <laughs> That's your answer. We're going to see if she, she answers She has a lot anyway. of tummy issues. <laughs> so it restricts what she can eat or not. And she can, probably will say that, oh, you know what her favorite food is? Huh. Her favorite, because we've been talking a lot about self-care food, her favorite food right now is cheese. So any kind of cheese. Cheese. And what's your favorite food? Um, it should be, she would say ice cream. Because we, we've been talking about like how in this time of incre- incredible trauma, she is drawn to cheese and I've been drawn to ice cream. Those are your comfort foods? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, does she have a celeb crush? Yeah, it's probably a really boring looking white dude. <laughs> um <laughs> She could really answer anything under yeah. that. And you guys still, Yeah, it's, still it's probably someone up. who I'd be like, what? <laughs> and what about you? A celeb crush. Yes. Um, or a celeb you really want to meet, like you're dying to meet. It doesn't have to be a crush. Oh, my gosh. No, I think my celeb crush right now is Riz Ahmed. I'm just going to put that out there. Okay. Hey, Riz. Hey. <laughs> Call me. That's good. Okay, we're going to match these up with her and see, yeah. and see how she does. You feel good about those answers? Yeah. Yeah. That was hesitant. I, I mean, I think she'll probably get mine, but I, I wonder who her celeb, because I feel like I should know this white boy celeb crush. Like, I, sh- yeah. I think I should be a little bit more direct on this, um, but I can't, I can't, I can't. That's a nice broad umbrella, yeah. though, because you're going to be right, yeah. I think. She it can't can be someone who I think is hot. Right. It's going to be someone who's, like, really boring looking. Really boring looking. Okay. Noted. We're going to ask for Ben. <laughs> um, Tess Emmett, thank you so much for stopping by. It was a pleasure to speak to you. Thanks for having me. Have fun with Zara. Thank you. I'm sure we will. So you just heard from Taz Ameth, co-host of the Good Muslim, Bad Muslim podcast. We're joined now by Zara Norbaksh, the other co-host of the Good Muslim, Bad Muslim podcast. How you doing? Hi, hi. Hi, hi. How you doing? Things are good? Oh, my God. So good. Such a good time to be Muslim. <laughs> Um, Zara talked a lot about you, so you have full permission to talk about. I'm oh, sorry, Taz talked a lot about you. You have full permission to talk about her. She said good well. things. She Mostly good things. things. Mostly good things. Yeah. This is like that thing where like you get interrogated, right? And it's like, did he give me up or didn't he? I'm gonna send her to jail. <laughs> so here's the thing: we always start off asking people to kind of share whatever part of their personal narrative they want. Like if you just met someone randomly on the street and you're like here's who i am can you tell us your story can you tell us how you got to be you my name is zara Mm -hmm. i am a feminist muslim iranian american comedian and i am a muslim seeking world domination (laughs) that's not accurate no is it you tell me well I, i would like it okay so how did you become a feminist iranian american Muslim comedian. By being born. <laughs> Where'd you grow up? It's the easiest way to do it. Yeah. I went to a different elementary school for every year. Did you really? Yeah. Why is that? My parents were just young. I, I had young parents. You know, they like, they, they got married, uh, arranged marriage, came here from Iran, mm-hmm. thought they were going to go back. The revolution broke out, ended up staying. And uh, my dad was just like going to school every time, like, he got his master's in Davis, got his PhD in uh, Irvine, so we moved again, and then he was just getting different jobs around Silicon Valley. We were just, you know, you move from one side of the city to the other. It's a new school. Right. And Always uh, in California? Always in California, yeah, and we ended up settling in the Bay Area, and I grew up there for the rest of my life. What was that like, moving around a lot? I learned how to make friends really fast. I'll bet. And sometimes it was nifty because it was like I'd be popular in one city and then like not at all super dork in the next. Mm-hmm. And then uh, where we ended up staying, I was a huge nerd and that sucked. So that was the majority of your childhood? That was like middle school, high school. Man. Super awkward, really uncomfortable. Were you funny then? 
No, I think the funny, like, I mean, I always wanted to be, this is how geeky I am. This is such a comedy nerd story. Oh my God. When I was a kid, we were like, we used to draw X-Men cards. Were you into that? No. Sorry. Oh my God. What? I was pretty nerdy too, but I did not do this. I had other I'm ways of so nerding into out. the X-Men. Okay. And we used to draw our own cards and like create our own superheroes. And then I gave one of mine the power to make anyone laugh. That's very prescient. It's so dorky. No? And they were like, what? Like I had all these like dude friends and they're just like, what? What are you talking? <laughs> like they had like invisibility, telepathy, teleportation to any dimension. And I was like, I want to make anybody laugh at any time because then no matter what, then you're always making friends. So you knew. I mean, I moved around all the time. So making friends was really important. Was it hard though? I mean, you sound oh, like definitely. you kind of coped as well as you could, but it had to be definitely. It had to be tough. Yeah, there were a couple of times where my parents were like, "We're moving," and I like slammed my door and yelled, "I hate you." There were a couple of those. I think everyone does that, though, right? I did that like on the regular from ages <laughs> like thirteen to sixteen. I think that's what you do. That's you know? th- those were like big deal moments, though. Like they felt like earth shattering because I had the whole like uh, immigrant pressure. Did like, you have that? Yeah, especially because we had a the a family in a diaspora, like the Iranian diaspora. We were really I didn't I didn't know my grandparents, aunts, uncles. I didn't have any first cousins here. Yeah, it was just my nuclear family. So it, like it was you know us on the Oregon Trail. Did you know other Iranian families? Was there like community around you or not for a while? Yeah. Uh, now I do. Now I have this you know great. Um, Bay Area Iranian community and family but um, because we moved around so much too then it was kind of hard to really settle in and meet anybody and where we ended up settling was actually a conservative sort of Republican um, part of the Bay Area that was really isolated Hmm. um, and not super Iranian not super Muslim either I'm guessing no no it like now yeah now Uh, you know, because we're taking over everywhere and we're trying. We're infiltrating. Were you the only Muslim family around? Because I, when I think back to how like of the, how my faith got to be, I'm Muslim too and I was raised Muslim, but when like, we were the only Muslim family in school and I went to Episcopalian school too, so I mm-hmm. went to chapel every week. Oh, wow. Like every Wednesday we would go to chapel because my parents were like, look, this doesn't undermine your faith. Just go. Like know, you know, know the Bible, know all of this and just say your own Muslim prayer when they're saying theirs. So I learned the Lord's Prayer, but I also would just say my own prayers during chapel. Oh, I know. So you know all the Bible stuff. All front to back. Yep. Oh, my God. I'm so envious. Yeah. Are you? Yeah, because ninth grade was so hard not knowing anything about the Bible. Really? Why? Ninth grade English. Everything is like, and this is a biblical reference, and this is a Jesus archetype. And I was just like, I don't know what that is, dude. Jesus is a man. Like, what are you talking about? Who's Messiah? You've you've actually written a lot about your faith growing up, which I find so interesting because you, you're obviously hilarious, but you've written very seriously about it, like very yes. eloquently. Thank you. And it occupied seemingly very significant part of your childhood. Is that fair? Definitely. Yeah, tell me about that. Well, um, my parents came here uh, just at the break of the Iranian Islamic Revolution. Um, And like many Iranians, they were thinking it would bring about change and were, you know, disillusioned. Um, And so holding on to faith when we came here was one way of holding on to our Iranian-ness, ironically. And I say ironically because... There is a a lot of people don't understand the complex relationship that Iranians have with Islam. Hmm. Um, Iranians have really diverse faiths. There's Baha'i, atheists, Jewish, Persians, um, Muslim, um, Christian. uh, And a lot of people escaped because they were being persecuted during the Islamic um, revolution. Uh, And so there's a really small Muslim Iranian community here, my parents really held on to their religion as a kind of like, um, well, I mean, they're devout religious people. And also, I think there's this thing that happens in the diaspora where you hold on to your traditions more, uh, even more so. Yeah. Um, I would say even more than, uh, they're probably more observant, I would say, than a lot of their family in Iran back home. Really? 
Yeah. Because it gave them a sense of familiarity and tradition. Th- yeah, and, and well, there's all this pressure and you feel like you're losing your traditions and your culture and your upbringing. And so we went to a Farsi Islamic school mm-hmm. to learn how to speak Farsi, but it was all theocratic texts issued by the Iranian revolutionary government. So I grew up like with um, all these pictures of Khomeini, Imam Khomeini, kissing babies, hugging babies. Like there was one day in kindergarten, this girl was like, do you know about Santa? Because I was in ESL, English as a second language, yeah. when I first went. And uh, she was like, do you know about Santa? Because I came in right after Thanksgiving. They were singing Christmas songs. I was totally lost. You had no concept. I had no idea what they were singing. And <laughs> She was like, Santa, come on, Santa. And I was like, who is Santa? And she was like, he's this guy with a big beard, and then he wears a robe. And I was like, do you mean Khomeini? Imam <laughs> Khomeini? And she was like, well, we call him Santa. And I was like, oh, cool. Yeah, I know him. <laughs> I know that guy. And she was like, on Christmas, he's going to bring you presents. He'll come down your chimney with a reindeer. And I was like, get out. <laughs> I ran home. I was like, dad, you did not tell me this about Khomeini. <laughs> And then my dad explained to me what Santa was. <laughs> a little bit of a disconnect there. That was a bummer. Um, but your dad was also a huge influential force from what you've written about in terms of like teaching you about your faith and the practice of your faith, right? Yeah, and for him, it was very much tied to this sort of, I, I want to say, like the everyman's religion. Because that was also a part of the narrative, some would say propaganda, of the, I'm just leaving space. I'm leaving space for complexity. It, it's a conversation. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I'm hearing all the emails I'm going to get after this in my head and answering to them. I hear you people. Uh, but, but that was what the revolution. It, it was very much. Used. Yeah, it was the yeah. people's, the people's religion that like, you know, and so it came with a lot of sociopolitical messaging. When I was five, you know, I came home and uh, we were just talking about my name, Zahra. Uh, when I was a kid, there was no one else named Zara, they said Zara, right? Because right? like they Vikingized everybody's <laughs> name. I don't know why Americans do that. You have to like like Golbahar is this beautiful Persian name. They yeah. call her Golbar. <laughs> like everything becomes a Viking name. But anyway, I got I came home crying and I was like, I hate my name. I hate my name. And my dad was like, Zahra, do you know who Zahra is? She's the first prophet who is a woman. She was Hazrat Muhammad's daughter first child everyone thought she was going to be a boy she was a girl she brought feminism to the middle east they were burying baby girls alive until you came and they realized my god the prophet's first child is a girl and uh you know then i went to kindergarten and told everyone that and i had a different different kinds of bedtime stories (laughs) than most five-year-olds so this is like very much a part of my upbringing. And it, it was always like a little magical, like hearing my father talk about it because he was like such a believer, you know, that it could bring about change that like if we if we are good people and we give the people power, it'll bring about change. Um, it's very American. Very like, you know, very, very democratic. Remember when we had a democracy? That was nice. So as you, we're going to get into politics, don't worry. When you, I know you have feelings. When um, when you grew up, were you sort of in line with the way that your your father uh, was teaching you, that this is what is expected of you, this is what you're supposed to do, or did you rebel against it later? How did that? Oh, my father was definitely go. patriarch for me. Like, I was always wide-eyed listening, and like, you know, um, I wrote about... Um, confessing to him that I'd stopped praying and felt so guilty and even when I was in college and I moved in with my atheist whitey white I have like a pilgrim white boyfriend now husband legit and uh I I still felt compelled to tell him you know I'm moving in he's atheist he's not converting please be okay with it I'm a feminist I don't care what you think but I just want to let you know, and please be okay with it. How was he? Was he okay with it? Well, I have a whole show about it. I mean, it was a big argument. You know, it's called All Atheists Are Muslim. And uh, it is about the fight that my father and I had and how he reconciled it. What he said was, um, the way he came around was, uh, he said, well, listen, the word Muslim 
just means one who surrenders to a force greater than himself. Right. It's the one who submits, right? Yeah. So yeah. Does, does he believe in gravity? Gravity is a force greater than him. He surrenders to that force. He can't change it. He's a Muslim. And that's it. That was enough for him. And then he was good with it. Yeah, he was good with it. You, in the beautiful essay, I remember reading about you and your father and your kind of journey through faith. You talked about how you stopped praying. Yeah, because in my head, you know, even though my father talked all the time about, like, don't call God, God. It's not everyone thinks of a man God when they say God. Say Allah. Allah is not man, not woman, not human. It's everything. And still, it didn't matter. Like, when I prayed, I imagined my dad, but, like, with a beard or a Santa Khomeini, <laughs> like, some version of some dude. That, and at some point, like, if I was fighting with my father, I couldn't pray. I was, like, angry also, you know, at the same image that I was imagining in my mind. And uh, I just, I, of course, as a kid, like, I stopped seeing the point. Yeah. And my parents were very, like, you know, this is for you. This is between you and Allah. And I was, like... Cool. I'm gonna watch X Men then. I think he's cool with it. I mean, she. I mean, it. Allah. Allah's cool with it. I'm just gonna watch X Men. Thanks. It sounds like there was like they were raising you in a very regimented way, at least when it came to being Muslim. But they kind of gave you the freedom to define it for yourself. Did that, or was there always conflict yeah. there? I mean, I am a pork eating, alcohol drinking, premarital sex having, bisexual Muslim. So yeah, I had a lot of freedom to sort of find myself growing up than maybe a lot of people. And how did each of those revelations go down with your family? Uh, the, each with a conversation. Yeah. Um, I recently came out to my family as bisexual. I wrote about that as well. Uh, in the wake of the Orlando shooting, it felt necessary. I could not talk about it. To not talk about it all of a sudden felt like a homophobic act. And even though I'm straight passing, um, I, I felt compelled to take up space as a queer Muslim. Um, there was all this talk about how you can't be gay and Muslim, and I don't believe that. Um, and I speak on behalf of all Muslims, so I felt it was important to make that statement. You've officially gotten that. I've officially that, got that I'm that seeking world domination. So I just... Here's the interesting part for me, and this is something people put to me all the time, to other friends of mine, and I'm, I'm really curious um, how you answer it more just to inform myself and I'm going to take this answer and use it but all those parts of you being a feminist uh, eating pork drinking alcohol all those things are part of like the rules right for right. being Muslim so what part of you is still Muslim well let me put it this way my husband uh, is an atheist but he doesn't drink uh, he doesn't like it he doesn't like when people drink and he doesn't eat pork He's politically against it. He says that pigs are almost closer to human beings than primates, and he won't let me eat pork. Okay. And he only eats halal, zabiha halal, in fact. He checks to see, like, where it's butchered and that it's not in a halal factory, that it's actually, like, had a good life. And That just so matters to him politically. That matters like to the him way the politically. Animal lived and died yeah. matters. Okay. If you mentioned God to him, he would say that's baloney. And he would laugh and then he would go into a whole, you know, tirade about how we have religion due to the lack of a real economic infrastructure. But he does that make him more Muslim? He uh, he believes in gravity and doesn't eat pork? <laughs> right? Like and he doesn't drink does that make him more Muslim? You know, what part of him now is left atheist? I think like when we get so hung up on these sort of rules, so to speak, quote unquote, which really are, I'm going to say, traditions that I think are sort of touchstones for us, it, you, you lose so much of what religion is for, which is coping, community, um, your history, um, and culture is woven into it. And I think... When it comes to culture and sort of and, and assimilating to a local culture, a new culture, I think it gets scary. And I think what I see happening so much is, especially now, especially with the scrutiny that Muslim families are under, I see so many second generation, third generation Muslims who want to stay really connected with their family, but feel like they're betraying them somehow if they let go of these traditions. And 
I push back against that because I don't think it helps anybody. I see so many people feel distant that don't need to. I don't feel less Muslim. I feel probably the most Muslim of everybody. But that same community that you say you find as part of your faith, there are a lot of people in that community who will look at you and be like, you're not Muslim. You eat pork, you have premarital sex, you drink, like you don't pray five times a day, you don't cover, any any one of the rules they can point to at some point and be like, no, that it, it doesn't count. I'm so glad you said this because this is why on our podcast, Good Muslim, Bad Muslim, I have fatwaed the use of the word community. I'm sick of it. I think that what happens is, We're drinking the Kool-Aid when we assume that just because somebody else calls themselves Muslim, we're of the same community. I have talked to so many bigoted, conservative Muslims, Republican Muslims, Muslims who don't believe in reproductive rights, who don't believe in queer rights. Um, That's not my community. I don't connect with them. But I was drinking the Kool-Aid. I assume that just because you're a Muslim and I'm Muslim, then we connect we believe the same. No, we don't believe the same things. And I think what's happened is this essentialization that is challenging when it comes to religion. Religious people like to be right. Right. And so we want to be able to say there's a standard, there's a right kind of Islam mm-hmm. and I'm practicing it. Uh, and like I said, it's a disservice. Have you ever thought about not calling yourself Muslim? Have you ever thought like, OK, maybe oh, there's too much in this that I'm not down with and maybe I'll try something else or I'll try atheism or whatever, you know, like <laughs> I'll try Buddhism, like just, every white person in San Francisco. <laughs> Let's give that on. For no, is there ever a part? Cause so Absolutely. it sounds like you've had so much conflict within your own identity and kind of con- reconciling that with the expectations yeah. heaped upon you. Well, and that's what ended up fortifying my identity as a Muslim is I found myself seeing, you know, these imams speaking for me on behalf of all Muslims and a lot of Sunni clerics speaking on behalf of all Muslims. And I'm Shia. And, um, you know, then in Iran, there's like a whole um, cleric, you know, community, no women in it. Uh, And I I was like, none of these people speak for me. And my father told me that there is nobody who gets between me and Allah. And that is a foundational tenet of Islam. So what's going on? And, and I started to get frustrated that there were all these people who were pushing me out of my own religion. And so I decided, you know what? I'm not leaving this house. I'm boarding it up. You guys get out. Y- you figure out. I'm Muslim. You find yourself on the spectrum of Muslimness based off me. I'm sick of doing it using you as the comparison. Why should I? I shouldn't have to. You, uh, I remember your podcast, your and Taz's podcast, right after the election. And you guys are obviously funny together. You chit-chat. You joke a lot about a lot of different things. But there was um, there was a gravity to that one and a seriousness. I mean, on the edges, you were joking and stuff. But you were clearly shaken Yes. in mm-hmm. a very real way. What was that like? I was terrified. Um, I'm so thankful for my sisterhood with Taz. And the activist work that she does. And it's so great to be able to meet with her once a month, especially to hear the work that, you know, is going on in the Muslim activist community and in the intersectional activist community. Um, I was just so scared. And um, it was really wonderful to be able to have her, you know, with me in that and to be able to talk through it, you know, Outside of our conversation, there's a lot of people who would, you know, I don't know if you found this, but you would polarize each other. I would uh, find myself in a conversation with another Muslim person, and either we would spin each other out with fear, or the other person would be saying, like, no, 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 everything's fine, and you're exaggerating. And so being able to have that conversation with her after the election was an opportunity to really sit in it and and grieve and, and be afraid and not know what was coming next but search for what was the strength within each of us um, and to find that again. Um, And she put it really beautifully. She uh, quoted Humble the Poet at the end of the podcast. Um, It's a really gorgeous listen. Um, And I'm going to paraphrase, but it was basically we as brown folks have a history of um, resistance and we have that strength within us and it's there and I, I needed to hear that. You know, I, as a comedian, 
Uh, I'm not as immersed in the activist community. I'm much more in the entertainment um, industry. Mm -hmm. And so it was really lovely to be able to have that moment. Are you still worried now? I'm terrified. Of what? Internment, persecution, hate crimes. I'm afraid for my family. I'm afraid that, you know, some random horrible person is going to kill somebody again somebody that I know that I'll pick up the phone and it's my dad my mom my brother or sisters um yeah I'm I'm terrified how do you reconcile that now especially because your job is to make people laugh right like that's how you spend your days that's my coping when I'm angry when I'm afraid it comes out funny you know, that's so why I became a comedian. I, I also, I gravitate toward it. Um, and, and that's how I cope is um, I'm definitely performing more than I've ever performed. And I find if I don't have that time on stage to work through those things and laugh, then I sink into a depression. You travel a lot for your work, too. You go all over the country, presumably. Or I in, do. Yeah. I'm JetBlue Mosaic. <laughs> Is that the highest level? I I, it just that. means you travel a lot. <laughs> I, think, I think I've done, like, just in January, I think I had, like, something like 15 flights. Jeez. So you, you're often probably landing in communities. Or I don't know, actually. Tell me about them. Are, are you ever going places where your no, person, girl. your identity is, is unique for people? Oh, my God. I All the time been, or no? I, no, I've been asked. I have had so many invitations to Texas. I'm afraid of you. To Ohio, I'm afraid of you. It took a lot for me to go to Michigan even. <laughs> really? Oh, my God. I'm so chicken. I don't know why people think comedians are brave. I hang out with the liberals who love me. And and I perform for people who laugh at my jokes. I am. I do not need to get shot for comedy. Wait, have you not gone to those places? Though? No. You won't go. I won't go because here's what I'll say. I'll write back to them and say, what is your campus security? They'll write back, what's that? D we're done. <laughs> but you're legitimately worried that you'll go somewhere Absolutely. like that? Absolutely. Really? Absolutely. People are being emboldened all over the place. And I need people to take that seriously. If they're going to invite me and they want me to dispense a message that is going to affect people and create change, then they have to know that that puts me at some risk and they have to take that seriously and value that. And if they don't value that, then I'm not going to risk my life or my health. Um, you know, it, it takes a lot to keep gigging. Uh, and so I have to be really selective about where I'm traveling, when I'm traveling, what the cause is, and how I'm being taken care of. So if there is adequate security on the ground, or if you feel like they, they've taken it into consideration too, then you'll go to un unfamiliar places, yeah. we'll call it. Yeah. But I've had invitations that sound like, so the KKK is actively recruiting on campus, and we just would, we think that the Muslim kids here would really appreciate having somebody like you with your voice, and we don't have any <laughs> campus, we don't have any campus security that's not cops, except the KKK is recruiting, and cops, uh, mm, white supremacy, cops, uh, that relationship. And you'll say no to that. Uh, yeah. that's. But here's the thing, for those kids there. There's internet. And I'm available there. <laughs> My website is. <laughs> I, again, like I have to put that on the shoulders of the school. I refuse to put that on my end. You know, the, those campuses need to provide that kind of security. They need to let their students know that they're valued. Yeah. Um, and, and that it's important to them. Yeah. Um, you had a chance to go to Iran, right? A chance? Chance. You tried to. It was more like... Um, a, a person invited me mm -hmm. uh, for a TEDx, and um, yeah, I like the I. There's a lot I would like to say that I legally I can't. Okay. Um, suffice it to say, it, they almost got me killed. Uh, it was really irresponsible. Uh, and I was a fool. Uh, you know, I was very green in terms of like understand. I, I had always sort of valued my broad uh, American public school education that uh, doesn't know a whole lot about foreign policy. 
And so I thought, like, oh, I'm going to go. Feminist, Muslim, Iranian-American comedian. I'll be in Iran. I'm going to do a TEDx. Uh, that's – no, that's crazy. Uh, you know, they're not really about ideological change. Uh, and because I was published in Love, Inshallah, The Secret Love Lives of American Muslim Women, and it's in the New York Times, and one of the first three sentences in that article says, Zara Norbach writes about sex. Mm-hmm. If I went there and anybody Googled me and that popped up, it is illegal for women to write and publish about sex in Iran, I would be arrested and I would be guilty. And I don't know what would happen to me. Um, and I figured that out uh, and didn't go. Um, Were you disappointed by that? I was broken. Um, we, My husband and I were going to get married there. Really? Yeah. Uh, we were going to get married there. We had told all our relatives. It was like this really big deal. Uh, my parents were going. Um, we set aside three weeks for the whole thing. And um, it was just devastating because it also was the realization that I don't know that I can ever go. Does that matter to you to be able to go? My whole family is there. Um, I've only been there once. I went when I was 14. It changed my life. You know, I was in middle school. We were a very isolated family. Um, Nobody in middle school liked me. They all thought I was weird. I was the weird girl with a weird name that didn't wear shorts and kept saying it was because of a religion. And (laughs) when I went there, everybody loved me unconditionally. I'd never met them before. They were just like, I'm your aunt. I'm your uncle. And, you know, kissing me on the cheek. And we were all playing. And it was magical, and I'd never seen my mother so happy, and people weren't mean to my mom. Everybody looked like my mom, and it was magical, um, and I'll never have that again. It's devastating. Do you think it'll change at some point? I hope so. I hope so. Um, you work so much. I mean, you have, you're so prolific in your comedy career. You're constantly gigging. You write a ton. You have these amazing one-woman one woman shows. Um, the latest one, On Behalf of All Muslims. Yes. Tell me about that. It's my comedy special. Uh-huh. I am um, merging my storytelling with my comedy and uh, touring it. And just seeing what happens to have that title. Um, and it turns out so far, I get a lot of white audiences looking for an education. Really? That's on you. Right. (laughs) Okay. Which, you know, I'm happy to be the authority on all things, uh, and revel in that. And it's really an opportunity to kind of play with that, right? To subvert the expectation Hmm. to, to, I love titles where you can't tell where the person stands. You know, All Atheists Are Muslim, one of the fun things about that title was that there were people who were anti-Islamic that were coming to the show thinking that I was making some kind of statement, Hmm. who were there in the same audience as people who were, you know, uh, I don't want to say pro-Muslim, just not bigoted. (laughs) (laughs) So, and there they all are in the same audience, you know, and so it's an incredible thing. I love that. I love having a crowd that doesn't all agree with each other. Um, and to see that dynamic live, um, it's really magical. And uh, so with On Behalf of All Muslims, then it's the opportunity for everyone to kind of show up and be like, what's she going to say and find out? Um, and it gives me the opportunity so that I can you know, subvert this expectation that anyone can speak on behalf of all Muslims. Why not the pork eating, alcohol drinking, premarital sex having, bisexual now married to an atheist, pilgrim white dude kind of lady. Why not? Indeed. Um, we did this thing with Taz where we wanted to see how well you guys know each other. Because you've been doing this podcast oh God, for like a couple fail. of years now. She's so good at this. <laughs> she's thoughtful and she's caring. She, she hemmed and hawed a bit on some of her answers. It's real. It's three quick ones. We're going to see how well you can do this. It's just how well you know each other. Basic things. Basic things. Do you think she has a favorite color? Oh, my God. I'm already dead. Is it, it's, is it magenta? Is it teal? Uh, you know what? I'm going to give you that. I'm going to go with teal. She said turquoise. Turquoise. She oh. said like grayish blue and then turquoise. And then she guessed yours. What's your favorite color? Magenta. Is it? Yeah. She said pink. Yeah, I close think enough. We can, I'll take it. I think the judges say I said, okay. I said teal. She said pink. We're it's, meant for each other. It's a language thing. Uh, favorite food. Do you have one? 
favorite food right now it's cheese ding 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 yeah <laughs> that's what she said that's, that's what she guessed uh and what's her favorite food oh darn it i thought you'd forget no. okay i have note cards <laughs> <laughs> oh my god taz ice cream yes <gasps> you guys are killing it okay last right. thing celebrity crush or like famous person that you're dying to meet who do you think it would be for taz riz ahmed yes oh really yeah, she's met him a couple of times. She did not mention that. I think it was just celebrity crush for her, just like who she'd oh, I see. like to spend more time with. And do you have one? Channing Tatum. That came quick. She did not know that. Oh, do you know what her answer was? What? Some boring looking white dude. Ah! <laughs> I do. I do enjoy boring looking white dudes. <laughs> Zara on your back. Thank you so much. It has been here. a pleasure. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Uncomfortable. If you like what we're doing, take a minute, leave us a rating and a quick review. It helps others to find these conversations, and we really just want to hear what you think. Plus, we've made it easy. Just click on the link in the description of this episode. If you have an idea for a show topic or a guest, leave it in the reviews or tweet at me, at Navazistan. That's N-A-W-A-Z-I-S-T-A-N, or use the hashtag UncomfortableTalk. Uncomfortable is a production of ABC News. New episodes post every two weeks on Tuesday mornings. I'm Amna Nawaz. Thanks for listening. <laughs>